0: Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jamil Hassan, an Afghan citizen who served with coalition forces as an interpreter for several years including to General David Petraeus, who oversaw the coalition mission in Afghanistan. Hassan and his family were forced to escape Kabul in August 2021 as American forces withdrew and the Taliban retook the capital, as well as most of the rest of the country. He's documented these experiences in a powerful and striking new book, Promises Betrayed, an Afghan interpreter at the fall of Kabul, for which General Petraeus has written a foreword. I'm grateful to speak with Jamil about the book and his extraordinary experience as well as his perspective more than a year after the West's withdrawal from his country. Jamil, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book.
2: Thank you so much. And I'm grateful for having me on the show. Let me start with a question that I've been thinking about
1: since we first scheduled our conversation. Why did you join the coalition forces in the first place? What ideas or values caused you to raise your hand and assume the risks associated with supporting the international mission in Afghanistan?
2: Well, there were three basic reasons. First, uh, in Taliban's first regime in late 1990s, I was a kid and I was uh, selling water on the streets in Jalalabad City in eastern Afghanistan. And one day, as I was preparing to start my business, the uh, Taliban traffic uh, police chief slammed all my my stuff uh, into the air and he got of his car and slapped me very hard on my face making it very clearly uh, to me that i should not block the street though i was not blocking the street and back then there were no vehicles at that time in afghanistan and uh i i was so upset and i decided with me and at my heart that if i have power one day I will resist them and I will try my best to to get rid of them whenever it's possible. And I prayed for them to be toppled at that time. Uh, so that's uh, one of the reasons that in 2008, when I got the chance, I thought this is uh, the proper moment to join the fight against the Taliban as an interpreter. Second was the idea of serving my country. My family did not allow me or my brothers to serve in the ranks of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. So instead, uh, serving as an interpreter alongside them to help them develop, to help them, uh, to help the uh, the coalition forces establish a proper Afghan defense and security force, was another thing that uh, prompted me to to start working as an interpreter with coalition forces. The third thing was, of course, the financial incentive. Um, uh, we were not in a very good economic uh, and financial conditions back then, and uh, the fact that interpreters were paid uh, a good amount of uh, salaries back then uh, was the third reason that I uh, started working with coalition forces.
1: You interpreted my next question. What did your family think about the decision? Were they supportive or did some question your thinking?
2: Of course not. Uh, My oldest brother already served uh, with uh, U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division in southern Kandahar, Afghanistan, on the battlefield. And my other brother was away in China working as as a translator and as administrative officer with a private company there. And I was the family guy there. I had to be at home. But then I got this chance. And of course, they were not they did not agree. But I, I encouraged them that let me go and test my English because I studied English for three years and I taught English for two years let me go and talk to foreigners if they understand me and if I understand them. And when I passed all the tests that are, the details of all are in my book, uh, and I was assigned with the uh, core commander of Afghan National Army's 207th Corps, that it was a very high uh, level position. And then when I came home, no one believed me that I was assigned with the core commander. So they gave me the chance to work for one year because this was a great opportunity to to add to my uh, CV in the future. Tell us a bit about
1: the experience. How did you carry out your work as a so-called Terp? What was your typical day
2: like? So I worked in two phases, uh, first from 2008 to 2012, that was more uh, a kind of direct engagement with the coalition forces and their afghan counterparts and the second time i worked was from 2017 to 2021 exactly 1 month before the fall of kabul to back to the taliban uh, in the first assignment i was uh, working with the afghan national army's 207 corps commander i worked directly with two uh, advisors of him uh, one uh, a us army colonel and an italian army colonel uh, uh, so uh, I was there translating for him whatever the advice came from uh, the coalition uh, advisors of the corps commander. And uh, later on, uh, during that first assignment, uh, I had to go back to uh, uh, finish my two classes of school. So I shifted to another place that was called a regional coordination center where elements of all uh, Afghan and foreign security forces were gathered to uh, evaluate the uh, security situation. So I worked there at night shift. Translating the uh, intelligence reports and operational reports for the coalition forces, and then from 2017 to 2021, I work at the headquarters of the NATO and U.S. forces mission, a Resolute Support, in Afghanistan. I was engaged in a uh, uh, kind of uh, it's called simultaneous interpretation. It's a real-time interpretation for providing uh, linguistic support for the highest level of uh, officials uh, of the uh, NATO and U.S. forces and their Afghan counterparts which included the Afghan defense minister, the Afghan interior minister and the director of the national director of security, which is equivalent of the FBI and the CIA combined.
1: As you mentioned, you came to work for a number of high profile figures, both on the, the coalition forces side and within the Afghan army and the, the Afghan government. Why do you think you were ultimately chosen for such important roles? What was it about you, Jamil, that that these people saw something in?
2: Well, Afghanistan is a very diverse country. It has multiple uh, languages that people speak, uh, cultural-wise and uh, population-wise. It's all in the book. Again, I say it, uh, the reason I'm insisting on my book is that it's the only and the first book that is written by an Afghan about the war in Afghanistan, and it will give uh, a unique perspective to, to readers. So the reason I was picked both times, and the first assignment and the second assignment, was that I spoke three languages, English, of course, and then two, the two uh, official languages of my country, which is Dari and Pashto. Uh, Pashto is my native language, and I studied and grew up in a Dari-speaking environment. So I had full skills in both these languages, and of course, my English was good, and that's, that was the reason that I was chosen both times.
1: Before we move on to questions about the West's withdrawal from Afghanistan, what the book's title describes as Promises Betrayed, let me just thank you on behalf of our listeners for your service. As General Petraeus writes in his beautiful foreword to your book, Terps, like you, shared risk and hardship with our forces on the ground, provided invaluable service to them, and on a number of occasions, even saved the lives of coalition force members with whom they were working. And so thank you on behalf of, of all of our listeners for your service. I want to turn now to the book's focus on the chaos in Cabal and elsewhere in the country following the American withdrawal in August 2021. As a starting point, I want to ask in particular about the view reflected in the withdrawal and a lot of Western commentary that basically progress wasn't possible in Afghanistan, and it was too costly to maintain a military presence to sustain the gains that had been realized in the previous two decades. What would you say to those who make this case? Why are they wrong? And what are they missing?
2: Well, uh, first of all, it was an honor to serve along uh, the U.S. and other international forces in Afghanistan uh, who were there uh, to uphold democracy and freedom. And they made significant sacrifices. And we are grateful for their service uh, in Afghanistan. And we are also grateful for those who were there last August to evacuate uh, America's and the world's Afghan allies. Well, to come to to the answer to your question, there was uh, a significant progress over the past 20 years in Afghanistan. We had um, uh, over 6 uh, million only girls uh, going to school, and now Afghanistan is the only country on earth that does not allow uh, girls to go to school. We had a security force of 300000 we had special forces that included women and that does not that is not something that is that you can see in either of the region's country in india pakistan tajikistan uzbekistan iran in in none of these countries you have female special forces, and we had them. And uh, those were the elite forces. Those were our uh, SEALs, uh, uh, and, and we were, uh, the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces were on the right track of defeating the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and the isis and other terrorist organizations active in Afghanistan. But unfortunately, since the start of the uh, uh, Biden administration, and to be more specific, since the beginning of the 2021, uh, the current U.S. administration started pulling out all assets that were required for the operations of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, that, w- that include contractors that provided maintenance for uh, Afghanistan's aircrafts, that include uh, uh, providing critical ammunition and weapons for the Afghan Air Force. Those were withheld uh, from the Afghan forces, and they were left alone to fight uh, the, uh, the enemy of the world, the Taliban, the, the Al-Qaeda, and other terrorist groups. And on the other hand, over uh, the past uh, two decades, the U.S. was deemed to be an ally of the uh, of Afghanistan on the Afghan people and the Afghan national defense and security forces, but unfortunately under the Trump administration, a peace deal was signed with the Taliban, and and that uh, was one of the reasons that things started uh, to go in the wrong direction. And the reason was that uh, the the, the second biggest mistake was that the Biden administration continued uh, with that agreement with the Taliban, despite knowing that the Taliban did not deliver their parts of the commitments that they had made to the U.S., to the Afghan government in Qatar uh, in negotiations with both uh, teams. And when the US completed its part of the promises made to the Taliban, the withdrawal, the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners from Afghan prison, which included suicide bombers, and on and on and on. And when it was time for the uh, Taliban to deliver their promises, uh, President Biden said, we are done, we are going, we are leaving Afghanistan. And the Taliban got that as, an, as a very good incentive to uh, do not uh, stay committed to their promises and start uh, attacking uh, very severely uh, uh, and fiercely the Afghan Defense Forces. and and running over uh, Kabul. So I again uh, want to specify that Afghanistan was on the right direction. We had very good people, we had very good achievements that are all mentioned in my book, again I say, and they're all gone because of a political decision to improve somebody's ratings for the presidential election or for the midterm election. In, in in the U.S. and and it's not me who says that the decision was wrong. It's the U.S. Army generals. It's the uh, former commander of the CENTCOM who says that he advised President Biden against his decision and at least to leave 2,500 troops there. But yeah, the the president did not listen to him. And let me tell you this: in my book, in the introduction part, there's a very clear calculation of the costs of the war both for the Afghans and for the Americans in terms of uh, uh, human casualties and in terms of financial uh, cost of the war. uh, Since 2014, when the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces took full responsibility for operations across the country, the level of the uh, coalition forces casualties and the costs that were uh, uh, sustained by uh, the international community dropped significantly. So with with a minimum of uh, foreign forces there to support the Afghan forces and with a very small amount of financial cost, uh, the world could hold Afghanistan as a safe place. But unfortunately, uh, everything fell apart.
1: Well said. Um, just, just a ton of, of, of insight there. Let me ask a follow-up question. You mentioned that um, some of these decisions may have been motivated by demis- domestic political calculus, which suggests that there was a sizable constituency within the American voting public, to say nothing of the Canadian voting public and other Western countries, um, that supported withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and that, in effect, politicians were following popular opinion. Do you think, though, that uh, had a leader like the American president or the Canadian prime minister or the British prime minister or others had made the case that you're effectively making that the the costs were low in exchange for supporting a uh, the ongoing progress in Afghanistan? Do you think that Western populations would have ultimately responded positively to that message and vision.
2: Uh, In my book, I have listed all these mistakes that were committed by the international community and particularly by the coalition forces in Afghanistan. And to come directly to to your question, the war in Afghanistan was not a significant issue in the past two presidential elections in the U.S. That's for sure, I know. It was not something that would favor uh, voters for either president, the Democrat or the Republican. But uh, and there were other significant issues that COVID-19 was there and there or other issues. And the, the international community and the uh, coalition forces, unfortunately, since the very beginning, were feeding uh, wrong information to the populace and to their uh, to the administrations, to their president. You can look into the many articles that say that the uh, the data that came from Afghanistan was not correct, and uh, there was a, a huge a campaign of misinformation. And the the uh, U.S. generals were were telling uh, U.S. president that that we were winning, and they were telling the U.S. Congress. That we were winning in Afghanistan. That is not the reality. Uh, And and, on the other hand, the war in Afghanistan had turned into a campaign of large contracts for big companies. It was no longer a a war against uh, a war on terror. It was a financial kind of uh, source for many big contracting companies in the West. So, again, I'm saying, had the coalition forces, the US, Canada, uh, the UK, made Uh, proper calculations about the war in Afghanistan, we would have prevented this this disaster.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: Well, let's turn to how this affected you personally. The book describes your harrowing experience of the Taliban taking of Kabul. Let me ask two questions. First... How did you learn of the Taliban's progress into the city? And second, what did you think in the moment?
2: Well, since mid uh, July, when I was released from uh, my uh, my employment as an interpreter, we were told that uh, uh, f- uh, at the end of the day, we will have a peace agreement signed between the, the US, the Taliban and the Afghan government. And eventually we will have a power sharing uh, government, which included the former Afghan government members and the Taliban, and we will have a lasting peace. And kind of that that's when uh, things started falling apart. Districts one after another, and then provinces one after another uh, started to uh, to fall to the Taliban but we did not expect uh, such a quick runover of the entire country by the Taliban uh, especially not in Kabul let me tell you this 15 days from the fall of Kabul was uh, we were expecting to hold a uh, wedding ceremony for my younger brother. And I was at home on the 15th of August, uh, supervising a group of painters painting the house for, for to, in preparation for this wedding. We had printed uh, the invitation cards. We had booked a wedding hall and all this stuff. We were not expecting such a quick fall off, at least the, the capital, We thought that uh, they will uh, hold there and, and things will not fall apart that quickly. That was at around 10 o'clock that day on August 15th, I got a call from my brother-in-law who was the passport directorate, and he, he told me, uh, he asked me actually where I was. I told him I was at home. And then he said, okay, do not leave home because Taliban are everywhere. And that's when I looked into my Facebook page and then I saw there were Taliban everywhere and everyone was posting about them. And the TV, when I turned on the TV, it was all there. When I look out my window, the uh, headquarters of the NATO and U.S. forces where I work, which is close to the U.S. embassy, they were burning uh, sensitive stuff and smoke was rising from there and the, the sky of Kabul was was full of Chinook uh, helicopters transporting people from here and there to, to the Kabul airport because that was the last stronghold for the international community, the embassies and the uh, U.S. military and others there. And, and it was unbelievable uh, for me because there were tens of thousands of Afghan forces and foreign forces in Kabul. And because the people and the security forces uh, in Kabul, they were fearful of the Taliban's retribution and persecution. They did not want to sacrifice for some political leaders who had already left Kabul and they had escaped uh, Afghanistan to sacrifice their lives for them. And, and the situation, they they realized that it was not uh, worth to find the, the enemy on the streets of Kabul and, and, and thereby uh, leave thousands of people killed and buildings, everything that were uh, the constructed over the past uh, 20 years that destroyed. So that was one of the reasons that the Afghan uh, uh, forces in capital did not resist the Taliban. But, uh, but it was a horrible time. And for three days I was hiding at home. And then uh, the fourth day, August 18th, I got a text from a friend about the, an evacuation by the Italians. I uh, picked uh, my wife and young daughter, and we went to the airport, uh, crossing multiple Taliban checkpoints. When we got there, we were told that there is no evacuation, you go back home. And uh, I I did not, I decided against it. I stayed there overnight, and in in the midnight at 11 o'clock a.m., I showed all my documents to the U.S. Marines, Luckily, they allowed me to go inside, and then I had to wait for 36 hours uh, amid the chaos inside Kabul Airport. It was a scene that I will not never forget. I served for eight years as a combat interpreter. I carried body armors. I I walked in sun in on the desert, but I resisted all that. But the scene at Kabul Airport uh, that was too much for me. So you can think of the women and children, the civilians who were there, who had never seen any 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 experience of of combat, And then after 36 hours, we were evacuated to Qatar only to stay there on the tarmac for seven straight hours under 50 degrees Celsius. And every uh, 30 minutes, an Afghan passed fainting and there was ambulance coming to take them uh, to the hospital. Why? Because there were no buses to take us to our hangar to the to the places that we, we should be there, so you can think of the mismanagement of the evacuation only because there were few buses at Al air base in Qatar every airplane had to stay there on the tarmac for eight to nine to ten hours and then we were taken to to Germany for a week there that was terrible, very cold and uh, unbearable for for especially women and children and Then we came to the u s and we we were there for two months at Wisconsin, Fort McCoy. And, and the, the, the story goes on and, and still, I haven't received my documents. I am an eligible and uh, SIV applicant. I, I, I was supposed to have my interview at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul on the 30th of August last year. Uh, uh, my green, scar, uh, green cards haven't been processed yet. So the evacuation process hasn't uh, changed a lot. Uh, We have thousands of Afghans left behind in Afghanistan, interpreters, former members of the the, the UNS that the CIA trained. They are stuck there in Afghanistan. The special forces are there. Taliban are looking for them. Uh, My colleagues, thousands of interpreters are in Pakistan, journalists civil society activists. They were told to go to third country because the U.S. would withdraw on the 30th of August and they will be evacuated later. Everyone is there. They are in Iran. You will not believe we have Afghans in Ukraine. They are trapped there because uh, they were evacuated initially there and they are still there.
1: You describe a total and complete failure on the part of Western governments to honor the commitments that we made to people like you who helped uh, our troops in challenging and difficult circumstances. And in turn, we haven't, as you said, um, helped many others who find themselves in similarly difficult and challenging circumstances. If I can go back a bit, though, in the immediacy of the Taliban's taking of the country, you described destroying a lot of documents, including letters of recommendation from U.S. military officials, photos, et cetera you write that these materials put you and your family in, quote, lethal danger. Do you want to elaborate a bit on the threat that you faced as someone who supported the coalition forces in general and high-profile figures like General Petraeus in particular?
2: Well, interpreters were at risk, at high risk from the very beginning. When the uh, the mission started in, in uh, late 2001 and uh, until it finished in 2021, uh, interpreters were the main targets for the uh, Taliban, especially on battlefields, because they were uh, the bridge uh, between the uh, coalition forces, their Afghan counterparts, and the local populace. Uh, they would initially target uh, interpreters because they were wearing civilian clothes. So in order to counter that Taliban tactic, the, US fo- the coalition forces provided military uniforms to the interpreters. Again, they were easily identified because they did not carry weapons. So again, they were being targeted uh, for, for in order to counter that, the coalition forces would put the interpreter in between them when they were performing food patrols uh, in, in deserts and villages in Afghanistan. And, and when things moved a little bit forward and then uh, some interpreters started working in offices, they were tracked in different places. People would travel even a small distance, they would take airplanes because on the road, it was not safe for the interpreter to travel, not only for the interpreters, but other uh, members of the Afghan security forces and those who work with the Afghan government. The risk was very high for me, especially uh, in my second employment. And uh, before I go to that, in my first employment, uh, there is this story in my book that I was followed for one year by a Taliban group, because I had translated in a meeting that resulted in the killing of their leader in Herat province. So they, um, and me and my brother, we look alike. They followed my brother for one year uh, and they were about to kill him, but suddenly things were under control that the story is in the book. And then in my second employment uh, at the headquarters of the NATO, I was uh, working at the highest level of the coalition forces and the Afghan government as a trilingual interpreter translator. Uh, Sometimes I would disguise uh, as a cleaner when I was leaving the, the base. Uh, when the threat was high, and I would take different routes when uh, going uh, to where I work. And when uh, the Taliban took over, I was in contact with the uh, Association of Wartime Allies. It's an advocacy group that uh, has been trying to help Afghan SIV applicants to process their cases. They were feeding us uh, correct information what to be done in order to avoid any retribution or risk of being captured by the Taliban. So the, the, their first advice was to, to destroy whatever documents you have. So it took me and my wife and my sister ten hours to gather them, take pictures, send them on email to my brothers here in the U.S., and then destroy them and then burn them in in the in the uh, kitchen, bit by bit, in order to prevent any uh, huge smoke, and then flush them to the toilet. And then I had coins which were not be, uh, uh, metal coins. I could not destroy them, so I asked my brother to go and disperse them in trash cans around the area where I lived. And, and uh, uh, my family was more frightened than I than I was because uh, and they did not allow me to to leave home for three straight days. Uh, and and the risk that uh, was posed to me was because of uh, my employment, especially in the, my second employment of working with senior uh, U.S. Uh, generals. And of course, because I had all the pictures and documents, especially my S.I.V. documents. Every bit of that proved that, according to the Taliban, I was working with the infidels.
1: Let me ask a penultimate question. What do you think the lasting consequences will be in terms of trust and respect for the West in the region? Uh, to put it bluntly, will the betrayal that the book documents push a generation of Afghans as well as others in the direction of anti-American and even Islamist forces?
2: Yes, of course. It's not about uh, only about uh, the Afghan people or the uh, members of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. It's about those particularly who work as as partners, as as interpreters, as contractors with the U.S. and other coalition forces in Afghanistan. Uh, We were uh, were all told that if something goes wrong, we will evacuate you all safely to uh, different countries across the world, to the U.S., Canada, Australia, U.K., and European countries. That did not happen. We still have uh, most of our elite Afghan forces, they feel betrayed. Their anger is way more than mine and uh, everybody else because they were the ones who put their lives on the line. They they put their lives of their families on the line to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda only at the end to see them come back with the help of whom? The America. Can't you believe this? The U.S. brought the senior Taliban leaders from Qatar to Kabul on a military, a U.S. military airplane. And these are are the mistakes that the international community and the coalition forces made. And the the consequences of this chaotic and, and, uh, poorly mismanaged withdrawal goes beyond the region. You see Russia attacking Ukraine only because America did not stay committed with its main uh, ally in the war on terror, Afghanistan. You see China threatening Taiwan. I don't know what Japanese and people in South Korea think. Do they think that the U.S. is a a, a trustable ally? You see uh, the Saudi Arabia did not answering President Biden's phone. What does that describe? That describes that that the world does not trust the U.S. uh, as the leader of the free world as as a trustable ally anymore. So uh, still, though it's late, it's not too late. Still we have time. We need the U.S. administration and the whole world, especially the U.N., to put more pressure on the Taliban so to, to, to make them protect, preserve, and respect human rights in Afghanistan, the freedom of speech, the uh, women's rights, and girls' uh, education rights, and all these things. And one other thing that the international community can do, especially the US, Canada, and, and uh, uh, the UK, as you mentioned earlier in the beginning of our conversation, is to help evacuate all these one vulnerable people We know that it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to overthrow Taliban again so all these people who worked in the past 20 years alongside coalition forces, they are at grave risks, whether they are the former members of the Afghan forces, interpreters, contractors, whomever they are. And those who are in, in, in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, they are in a very bad economic situation. They cannot feed their families because there is no employment, there is no work, nothing. Uh, and, and the, the, the uh, half of the uh, population are under the poverty line. So if they are evacuated, at least they will be safe. They will will be able to to earn a good amount of money here in the West, and they will be able to support the rest of their families in Afghanistan. And one other important thing is that uh, regarding this evacuation thing is that during this evacuation, most families were separated from one another. I have information about... Uh, hundreds of people who are separated. I, the women and two children are here in the US, the husband and two other children in Afghanistan. And the bureaucratic process of the immigration does not allow them to re, uh, reunite in maybe two or five years. So they, they can't wait. Their families, they live together. They need one another. Uh, the children need their parents. There, there needs to be a, a, a significant change in the immigration policies, not in here, not only in the US, in Canada and everywhere else so that they can help evacuate these people. And the last thing is that the international community should think of different ways to help the Afghan economy. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, talking about the Taliban, I'm talking about the businesses in Afghanistan to somehow allow them to import and export goods to and from Afghanistan around the world and have uh, uh, banks around the world to trade with, with Afghan businesses so that uh, there is another, uh, again, back uh, uh, employment chances for Afghans there and the economy grows back.
1: My final question, Jamil, is about how you and your family are doing today. What's life like? How has been the transition to America?
2: I am one of the luckiest ones because I have two brothers and their families here. It has been uh, very difficult, though, for other families because they have no relatives here. They are put in an unknown environment. It's it, They have a, a psychological shock, what we call it here, to bring them from a very conservative Islamic Afghan community, uh, put them in a Western community. That's very difficult for them to, to adopt to that immediately. But we are all, all Afghans, we are, we are trying to adopt to this situation, me and my family. We are very happy here. Uh, the, uh, the the opportunity of, of living here gave me the chance to write this book and to raise my voice and help and, and ask others to help me and, and draw the world's attention back towards uh, Afghanistan and, and to the plight of my people in Afghanistan and uh, around the world. We are very happy to be here, and we are very happy to be uh, alive and grateful for the support of the government, uh, the uh, military who, who evacuated all those Afghans last August, and for the civilians, and different charity organizations who are helping Afghans and lately the Ukrainians uh, uh, here to transform and to resettle peacefully here.
1: The book is Promises Betrayed, An Afghan Interpreter at the Fall of Cabal. Jamal Hassan, thank you for joining us today at Hub Dialogues.
2: Thanks a lot for having me on the program. And just one thing, uh, we also have a website with the same name, promisesbetrayed.com. And uh, your listeners uh, can go there and there's plenty of information.
1: That's great. Uh, we'll we'll include that in the show notes. As Jamil says, not only are there excerpts, there's the foreword from uh, General Petraeus, as well as Jamil's other media interviews promoting this terribly important book. Th- thanks again
0: for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.